At the University of Arizona Bio5 Institute, we are focused on tackling complex challenges such as disease, hunger, water and food safety, and other health and environmental issues facing our families, communities, and the world. Bio5 brings together hundreds of multifaceted experts that include world-class scientists, engineers, physicians, and computational researchers in a team science environment designed to creatively solve difficult problems. This approach has resulted in disease prevention strategies, promising new therapies, innovative diagnostics and devices, and improved food crops. Join us each week as we talk about science with researchers, staff, and students from the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute. Hello, welcome to another episode of Science Talks, a conversation hosted by the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Ullorn. Bacteria were among the first forms of life on Earth, and these microscopic organisms continue to rule our world today. While some strains cause infection or spoil food, others are essential to providing nutrients to plants, fermenting foods, and supporting our gut and reproductive health. Today, we're talking with Dr. Melissa Herbst Kralovitz, Associate Professor of Basic Medical Sciences, as well as Obstetrics and Gynecology at the College of Medicine, Phoenix. She's also the Director of the Women's Health Microbiome Initiative. Dr. Herbst Kralovitz specializes in the area of post-microbiome interactions of the female reproductive tract to ultimately develop better diagnostics, preventatives, and treatments for things like gynecological cancer. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Of course. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. So I think bacteria often gets a bad rap. Um, when people hear about bacteria, especially when they find out that bacteria live inside of us, they might get a little concerned. So talk to us about this delicate balance between good and bad bacteria, and particularly how it relates to your work with the female reproductive tract. Sure. So I agree. You know, most people hear bacteria and then they think bad and they think, uh, let's kill it um, with antibiotics. And, um, you know, that's worked well for us uh, for a while, but now we're gaining a, a better appreciation for actually the good bacteria that contribute to our overall health and well being. And so we're learning a lot um, about that from our gut and a lot of people that study the gut microbiome. Um, in terms of the female reproductive tract and, and what we study, um, we've known since the 1800s that these bugs uh, called lactobacilli actually contribute to women's health. Um, but we're gaining, again, a, a further appreciation for this. And these lactobacilli are actually found in the gut as well, um, but they come in different flavors in the female reproductive tract. And we know that similar to the gut, uh, these lactobacilli have protective mechanisms. So they contribute to health and homeostasis within the female reproductive tract. And we know that if you deplete these bacteria or if they um, become um, destroyed or um, by particular compounds that you might um, use, feminine hygiene products, et cetera, um, and we know that these bacteria get depleted, then that's an opportunity for what we call the bad bacteria 
um, to overgrow and then um, actually contribute to a whole host of uh, adverse women's health outcomes. Fascinating. Yeah, it does seem like a delicate balance and it can be altered by the things we consume. Um, I'm just interested, where did these bacteria, where did these bugs come from in the first place? Are we born with them? Does it come from the things we eat, from the environment? How do they get inside of us? Yeah, so there, yeah, the, that's a complex question that a lot of people are dissecting in terms of um, the origins of the microbiome, um, at what, uh, what is the first kind of um, exposure that we have to these uh, microbiota. And, you know, the jury is still out. That's a highly controversial topic. Actually, you might not be aware, but it is a, a controversial topic. Um, but what we know is that um, when you have these lactobacilli, again, that um, is, it, it does change across a women's uh, lifespan. So um, when you're uh, born, you have these lactobacilli because you actually have estrogen um, from your mom. Um, and then that goes down um, uh, soon after birth. And um, during adolescence, you have um, more of these anaerobic organisms and not as many uh, lactobacilli. But as you enter into uh, that menarchial phase and um, you're premenopausal, you have a lot of estrogen. Um, that estrogen feeds the glycogen in our epithelium and we have more lactobacilli. And so during that entire phase of the lifespan, lactobacilli dominance is again associated with overall vaginal health. Um, during menopause, when that estrogen uh, is depleted, um, those glycogen levels go down, that epithelium may change, and we may not have as much lactobacilli uh, dominance during that time, which can cause a lot of issues. If we give back hormone replacement therapy, then we can get back that glycogen and that food source for those lactobacilli, and we have more lactobacilli dominance again. So this lactobacilli dominance really does contribute to health and homeostasis throughout the lifespan, and that does change. It's fascinating. I had no idea that the female reproductive hormones were influencing the bacteria um, in our reproductive tract, so... Absolutely, and it could impact our gut microbiome too. I think we're, we're just you know, starting to learn more about that. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so I know you mentioned that lactobacilli, the presence of them um, is more protective or it's a sign of good health, reproductive tract health. So tell me how losing that type of bacteria would impact different infections, maybe increased susceptibility to infection or just increased disease in general. Yeah, great question. So yeah, as I mentioned, um, you know, there are different uh, factors that can drive whether you have this lactobacilli uh, depletion and then you have this overgrowth of these bad bacteria or anaerobic organisms. And that condition we call bacterial vaginosis so or vaginal dysbiosis, so BV. And BV is really an enigma. It's uh, very complex. It's what we call a polymicrobial condition. So it's not one single etiologic agent or pathogen that we're studying. So it makes it way more complex. And actually, um, 
I wanted nothing to do with it <laughs> when I had a postdoc that started in my lab that was really interested in it. Um, and then I got hooked, just like she got hooked, because it is really complex. And it is uh, linked to so many of these uh, adverse women's health outcomes. So what we're trying to do and what we started doing originally was really taking a reductionist approach to this very complex condition um, because we didn't know what any of those bugs were doing. So it's a polymicrobial condition, but no one really had, had started to study and dissect those mechanisms of the bacteria that made up this polymicrobial consortium. And so what we're learning is um, that there's early colonizers. So bacteria that you know, come in at an early stage and might contribute to this biofilm. Um, and then we have secondary colonizers that come in later after that biofilm has been established. And those secondary colonizers have different mechanisms of action. So those early colonizers um, we are hypothesizing can contribute to that biofilm. Um, and so they're, they're using different mechanisms. And then you have these secondary colonizers that come in and colonize that biofilm. And those are the bugs that are driving things like inflammation, genital inflammation. And we know inflammation is bad, right? It's, it's bad for a lot of things. Um, it can be good. Um, but in terms of um, promoting cancer and things like that, inflammation is bad. And, and that's how we're starting to kind of put together a picture of what are the functional roles of these individual bacteria. And then when you put them together, do those, does that pathogenicity of those organisms change? So are there microbe-microbe interactions that are occurring that make them even more pathogenic? Um, or virulent and contribute to some of these pathophysiological changes within um, that cervical vaginal microenvironment. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, it does, but I have a follow-up question. <laughs> so by understanding, by doing the work in your lab and understanding the pathogenicity and by understanding the interactions between the different microbes um, and our bodies, how can your work then help to inform prevention or treatment strategies for these different uh, diseases? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So um, we have a couple different kind of arms of our research program looking at that, but overall, you know, related to everything that I, I just mentioned in terms of the functional role of these individual organisms, if we want to target them, and we're still learning, you know, we have so many groups working on this, uh, which is amazing, you know, to try to better understand what are the key bacteria that are driving um, this dysbiosis. And can we disassemble, for example, the biofilm by targeting some of these um, bacteria that contribute to the biofilm by disrupting that biofilm, for example. Um, and then, um, as I mentioned with the secondary colonizers, blocking some of those to block inflammation, for example. So it, we're still kind of in early stages, better understanding each of these functions. Um, the other aspect of this is if we know that there's a microbial signature um, or that some of these functions, some of the things that we're looking at too are you know, doing the immunoproteomics analysis and the metabolomics analysis and 
potentially using those as markers for diagnostics for some of these conditions as well. And again, we're in the early stages there, but that's where, where we want to see this kind of translated back to the clinic so we can impact uh, women's health in a positive way. Definitely. Yeah, it sounds like this research, um, you'll be able to understanding the fundamentals and then it has so many different avenues through which it can impact um, actual patients in the clinic. So I think that's incredible. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, where does, so I know you mentioned a postdoc kind of brought you into the BV world, uh, bacteria vaginosis world, but where did your original passion for doing this type of research stem from? Yeah, so in terms of infectious diseases in general, um, it was really my undergraduate research experience um, in Colorado in Grand Junction. I started doing an undergraduate research project uh, with Dr. Shounce up there, and we were working on the Sonombre virus at the time. So this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, um, you know, that really got me geeked up. I originally wanted to go to medical school and you know, doing that undergraduate research project um, got me hooked on infectious diseases. And the cool thing about Sonombra virus is that it doesn't cause infection. Uh, well, it infects, but it doesn't cause disease in deer mice, but it does in, in humans, right? So that kind of differential host response um, and what were those host factors or those immunologic mechanisms that um, cause these uh, pathogens to manifest disease or not in different ways. That that really was the first um, exposure to that and, and intrigue. And it's really um, kind of crossed over um, for my whole career, um, my graduate training and beyond, um, really just intrigued by all of these pathogens. And so um, I may not kind of stay in my lane <laughs> and just work on one pathogen my entire life because I'm just so intrigued by how um, each of these pathogens work differently. And so it really feeds into this whole question of BV and it being a polymicrobial condition because I don't have to study just one single pathogen. Um, so it, it feeds into that <laughs> for sure. Definitely. Yes, it's opened a lot of doors, um, both you know now and in the future for years to come for you as a researcher. And I love how you mentioned too that your undergraduate research experience is kind of what changed your mind from med school to pursuing um, grad school and you know now being a research faculty. Um, so I, I think I had a similar experience where I went into undergrad thinking I'd be a pharmacist um, and then I got into a research lab and I got my hands dirty and I became fascinated with um, all things science and research. So I think a lot of people can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so important to, to have undergrads in the lab and, lab and uh, provide them those experiences. And I definitely feel I need to pay it forward in that regard because it definitely changed my whole career trajectory. Tell me about the makeup of your lab. I know you mentioned you have a postdoc, but um, do you have grad students and undergrads currently working with you? Absolutely, yeah. I'm really um, grateful to have kind of all levels represented in the lab. Um, I usually take on a high school student. Um, our, our high school program um, is not ongoing this summer due to COVID, um, but I usually have a high school student every summer. Um, I take on numerous undergrads um, and 
through uh, different universities. So um, I have undergrads um, from other local universities as well as Bath University. So we participate in an exchange program with the UK uh, and that has been incredibly valuable where they come uh, for a one-year placement in the lab. So um, undergrads and then I've had graduate students um, as well as the postdocs that you mentioned, but I also have the great opportunity to interface with our OBGYN residents and fellows. So that's a great experience as well. So I really get that entire spectrum of training and I have to adapt for sure to the to those different um, levels and, and the programs that I'm um, involved with. Right, most definitely. High school students are very different, different than your undergrads and grad students, postdocs, and even your um, residents. So, but I can see how not only are they benefiting from you and getting your mentorship, but I'm sure that you as a mentor benefit, and I'm sure the research also grows getting both the academic perspective and that more clinical perspective from your mentees. Absolutely. That's how we're able to, to translate findings and actually come up with new ideas because they're kind of the boosts on the ground. They're in the clinic every day. They're seeing the problems that they want to tackle too. And so it is this reciprocal process that is so fun. And I'm so grateful to be a part of a med school and to be able to interface with our clinical collaborators and uh, trainees. Right. It's a great opportunity. Um, so kind of speaking about trainees and postdocs, so we've had uh, two Bio5 postdocs, Dr. Robert Jackson in Dr. Conrad Vendorslayer's lab, and then also Dr. Kate Rhodes in Dr. Maggie So's lab on our podcast. Mm -hmm. So both are collaborating with you um, using this novel 3D bioreactor technology uh, to make lifelike representations of the female reproductive tract to enhance their research. So tell me, how have the connections that you've made through Bio5 enabled both you and your colleagues um, to make scientific advancements and discoveries that might not have otherwise been possible? Absolutely. So going back to some of the, the things that I mentioned early on in, in terms of uh, bacterial vaginosis and, and this dysbiosis kind of setting you up for all kinds of, uh, you know, poor women's health outcomes, one of those uh, is an increased risk of all sexually transmitted infections. So all viral, bacterial, as well as parasitic. And so, um, and, th and this is why it's a huge public health problem, right? And so we're really interested in, okay, I, I mentioned some of the, the functional changes that occur with these bacteria um, that set up for not only a favorable environment if we're talking about lactobacilli, but this higher risk or higher susceptibility microenvironment. And that's really where um, Dr. Jackson and, and Dr. Rose come in. So um, they both study highly relevant sexually transmitted infections, right? So uh, Dr. Jackson with HPV and Dr. Rhodes uh, with Neisseria gonorrhea. And so with their help and, and their, um, their PI's help, Dr. Van Dorsler and, and Maggie So, we're able to start to, to better understand what are those factors that are driving that increased risk of infection 
as well as uh, growth and persistence um, of those organisms. And we can use our human three-dimensional models to study those interactions. So we're really excited about um, those opportunities to partner with them um, through our Bio5 collaboration um, to extend our findings um, to make a more of an impact and understanding on those um, risk factors associated with those other infections because most of those studies have been epidemiologic studies. And so we wanna understand is this um, something uh, that's mechanistic? Is it, you know, what is it about the microenvironment that might be creating more of a favorable, um, STI favorable environment? Right. Well, I think that also goes back to what you were saying earlier about how you personally don't have to study just one pathogen for the rest of your life. You know, not only does your research open you up to so many doors, but then it allows you to have collaborations with people studying, you know, viruses, different viral infections, bacterial infections. So I think just the nature of your work is so powerful and so broad um, that it can reach all these different avenues. Yeah, it's definitely fun partnering with others and collaborating. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> so tell me more about um, the Women's Health Microbiome Initiative. So we mentioned that you're the director of that. Um, so what exactly is this initiative and how is it helping to advance women's health? So it goes back to some of the, the other um, you know, questions that you had and, and some of uh, you know, the translational aspects of our research program. So um, the Women's Health Research Program and Microbiome Initiative is um, really aimed at bringing together these clinical collaborators along with scientists, so bacteriologists, virologists, immunologists, um, as well as biostatisticians and bioinformatics gurus to really start to look at uh, not only the microbiome, but um, these multiomics analyses and see, you know, what is it about, again, the, the changes in the microenvironment that might be setting up for all of these disease outcomes. And so being able to really partner at this uh, larger level, um, being able to have access to clinical specimens and to perform this translational research allows us to, to tackle some of these uh, really complex women's health uh, questions that are remaining. So we talked about some of those um, with regard to STI acquisition, but also uh, gynecologic cancer. So we're really interested in studying cervical cancer and endometrial cancer, as well as uh, cancer health disparities that are disproportionately impacting women here in Arizona. So our Latina population, as well as our indigenous populations, um, in addition to other questions like infertility and endometriosis. So we're really able to partner and uh, do things at a, a bigger level through this initiative and, and through this program. And we've been able to build a kind of pipeline of clinical specimens uh, working with our clinical research um, team as well. So it's really um, exciting. It's an exciting initiative um, and we're hoping to make some uh, great discoveries. Most definitely. I think you raise a really good point that not only you know, does your work and your field require all of these different minds, but I think we're starting to see, and we've been seeing for a while, that the biggest questions in 
stem, whether that's about diseases or food sustainability, they can't be solved by just one lab or one discipline. It really requires this collaboration of scientists and clinicians across disciplines to bring together their resources, both you know, material, literal, and um, intellectual to answer these big problems. So that's great that you're able to head this initiative to tackle these big questions in women's health. Yeah, it's really fun bringing together all of these different groups. Um, and I get great satisfaction out of doing that. So yeah, team science is, is definitely the way to go. We can't make these big um, at, at least, you know, the whole goal is to, to have high translational value in the, this research so that we can go back to the clinic and make an impact. Right, definitely. So it, you are obviously incredibly busy and both successful um, in your work at the university, but I'm curious how you spend your time outside of lab. So how do you bring in a good, good work-life balance? What are your, some of your favorite hobbies and how do they help um, you know, benefit your career and your personal life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, um, we can't just be in the lab all the time. <laughs> so, um, and I am, I, I say I'm a recovering workaholic. So, <laughs> um, I, you know, it, it, it's always hard. Uh, I don't know that balance really exists. I think if anyone says they have it figured out, then they, they might be lying. Um, I, I think it's, you know, time is very personal, um, but it's so important that we spend that time rejuvenating and recharging. Um, and the way that I do that is with my family. I have two boys. Um, I have a 10 year old and a 13 year old um, and they like to get dirty. They like to go outside and we love camping as a family, um, doing outdoor activities. And I think it's so important to, you know, reconnect with nature. It's so that we can be recharged so that when we, when we come back to the lab, um, we have new questions um, and we feel rejuvenated and we can, you know, really uh, make these scientific uh, discoveries and, and breakthroughs. So I don't know that balance exists, but um, I tried <laughs> to be able to spend time with my family and, and recharge and, and nature is the way that we like to do that. Yeah, it's always a work in progress, that's for sure. And I, it totally resonates with me what you said about nature. That was one of the things that I love about Tucson um, and that drew me there initially back when I was looking at a place to go for my undergraduate, it was just the mountains and the ability to escape the city, escape the town and just be alone or be quiet or be with, you know, the ones that I love and kind of get rejuvenated and inspired. And it always helped me come back to school or the lab or now my job um, just with a clearer mind and able to be more creative and productive. So that really resonates with me. Yeah, absolutely. And Arizona is beautiful. Our desert is so beautiful. Um, and I, yeah, I'm grateful to be here. I grew up here in Arizona and um, camping and getting out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, I've lived in other places in, in the U.S., including Texas, which it's a little bit harder to find those open spaces. So um, very grateful for that and our beautiful desert. <laughs> Agreed. Oh, do you have any upcoming camping trips planned? Uh, we just did a camping trip um, about a, a week and a half ago. So, um, but we, we like to camp all year round. 
um, and especially in the fall um, when it's, uh, you know, better temperatures <laughs> for yeah, camping. A little, a little warm right now. You have to go quite north, but <laughs> we'll get out of the heat hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's raining here today, so that's kind of a miracle. We need it. I know. <laughs> Doesn't happen often. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess now that it is monsoon season, but okay, can't we'll take those times for granted. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you again so much for joining us today. It was wonderful to hear more about your research, um, where your passion stems from, the different broad impacts that it has, um, and also just a little bit about you personally. Yeah, thank you for having me. Did a fantastic job too. Oh, yeah, thank the follow-up questions and everything. <laughs> appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. It's easy to have a conversation with someone like yourself that is so engaging and makes me think of even more questions, uh, makes me want to learn more. So I hope our listeners feel the same way. <laughs> me too. Aww. Well, thank you to our listeners for joining us for another episode of Science Talks. For more information, please visit our website at bio5.org. And from all of us at the Bio5 Institute, we'll see you in the next episode. To our audience for tuning in to another episode of Science Talks. Continue the conversation with us next time as we learn more about the science happening at the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute.